0: Our scripture text this morning comes from the book of Galatians. We're going to read a familiar passage of scripture from chapter 5. We're going to read 10 verses from 16 down through 26. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Now, you all have had enough introduction to Hebrew to understand that that word walk means more than just walk. Taking a stroll, putting one foot in front of the other. In the Hebrew understanding, your walk, your halak, was how you lived life according to God's Word. So let your life be an example. This I say saying, you walk in accordance with the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to another." So basically, we have an Adamic nature that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and then we have the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit within us. So Christians actually have a conflict. We have the spirit of holiness desiring to glorify God, and then we have our own flesh which wants to glorify itself, and they are in conflict. But if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest like this, adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, and drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you, as I have told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And understand that in the Greek thinking, they had compartmentalized life from the material world to the spiritual world. And they actually were preaching in some of these former pagan churches that had believed in Jesus. Jesus as the Messiah, but others were coming in and poisoning their minds, saying, "You know, remember our Gnostic roots. God doesn't care about the flesh. You can uh, have immoral relationships uh, with women. You don't have to worry about charity or any of that stuff because that doesn't matter. All that we're is concerned about is spiritual. No, the Lord rebukes that. Says if there's not evidence of the life that you live that's born out and visible, then there's likely no existence of the spirit of holiness within you." But the fruit of the Spirit, that which is naturally produced by the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There's no law against these things. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not desire vanity, vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. We'll stop right there. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of the Word of God. The title of today's message is this, The Work of the Holy Spirit Within Us. Well, it was only about a month before Jesus would be crucified. Peter's famous confession at Caesarea Philippi had already taken place. By the way, this is Caesarea Philippi. It was a pagan epicenter. They had different temples to different pagan gods. One of the primary deities they worshipped there was the ancient god Pan, the half-goat man from the waist down and human from the waist up with horns and blowing the, the, the flute but this was this grotto, this cave, actually was at the mouth of this this river that actually would feed into the Jordan uh, before it feeds into the Sea of Galilee. You see it all comes together up here actually there 's three rivers that come together, three streams that come together and produce one river, which I think is another sign of, of the triune existence of God, but this was called the Gate of the Underworld, or the Gates of Hell, the Gates of Hades. As you, they they believe, the Jews believe, that, or the Jews and Greeks actually believe, you go in that, and that would descend down to the heart uh, of the Underworld. And this is what Jesus was referring. It was here that Jesus was teaching his disciples. Maybe someplace as close as I am when I was taking this picture. And and, and he simply said, "Uh, who do men say that I am? And of course, some said, well... Some think that you may be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And some think that you may be Jeremiah, resurrected from the dead. Or or one of the other uh, prophets. And then Jesus said, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus commended him, saying that, Flesh and blood had not revealed that to him, but the Father in heaven had revealed that to him. So that shortly thereafter, after that monumental moment, then Jesus went up on to Mount Hermon, the highest point in all of Israel, and was transfigured and had a a, a pre-crucifixion meeting about end times with Moses and Elijah. And then they descended and went back down, beginning their descent ultimately down the Jordan River Valley to Jerusalem. But they made it back as far as Capernaum. By the way, this is Some of the remains of ancient Capernaum, marvelous archaeological dig just right there north and west at the top of the Sea of Chinnereth or the the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was teaching the twelve as as they were traveling from from Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum. And and Jesus said this as recorded in Mark chapter 9, for he taught his disciples and he said unto them, the Son of Man, now very clearly as a Jew, that was a Messianic reference, The Son of Man is delivered under the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And they understood not what he was saying. And they were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What were you guys uh, arguing with, with each other about as we were traveling today? And they held their peace. For, by the way, they had disputed amongst themselves who was most important. Which one of us, I'm the rabbi's favorite, not you. My ministry is more important than you. My my gifts and callings are better than yours. I'm more important than you are. I'm the one, when the rabbi's not around, I'm the one that's supposed to be in charge. He said so. So here was Jesus preparing to demonstrate the greatest example of selflessness in history as he was going to give his innocent life to pay for the sins of the guilty. And those for which he was about to die were consumed with selfishness. And pride and ego. We go a little further in this same journey, just days before the crucifixion, perhaps a week as they were now down uh, leaving the Jordan River Valley, going through old Jericho, approaching new Jericho. Of course, that's when they saw Zacchaeus hiding up in the tree. That's where uh, Jesus healed the two uh, blind men, one named Bartimaeus, before they made this ascent. And by the way, uh, Jericho is, is at sea level or actually even a little bit below sea level. Jerusalem and Bethany are about 3,500 feet above sea level. So literally, as you make this ascent up these 20 miles of some winding road, it's like going up the Rocky Mountains. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when we make that drive, uh, your ears will pop because of the increase in elevation. But Jesus and the Twelve were making that trip up towards Bethany. And in Mark chapter 10, we have a continuation of this story. And they were in the way, on the way, going to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them. They were following And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things would happen to him, saying, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, again a messianic term, shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again." Now, notice the callousness of those that are traveling with him, pretending that they're listening, but not hearing anything that he said. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, "'Master, we would that thou shouldest do us a favor. Give us what we want.' Uh, And he said to them, "'What is it that you'd like me to do?' And they said, "'Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and one on thy left hand in thy glory.'" Now, imagine this. Of course, there's explanation for the reason the Jews were confused. All the Messianic prophecies, all the promises of the coming kingdom are spelled out in the Old Testament. But then in the book of Zechariah, you have two different keys given to the Jews so they would recognize the appearance of their Messiah. And they're both in the same book. Just five chapters apart, but they both are completely different. In Zechariah nine nine, we see that you'll recognize the Messiah as he comes humbly bringing salvation, riding over the crest of the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey's colt. Of course, we know Psalm 22 talks about the Messiah's crucifixion. Daniel 9 tells us that the Messiah would be sacrificed, but not for something that he had done. We see Isaiah 53 talks about the, the suffering servant not being rejected for who he is and was and would be, would be put unto death. So all of that's in Scripture but it was still hard to understand the big picture because you go to Jer- excuse me, Zechariah chapter 14 and they also see that you'll recognize the Messiah because there's going to be a world war. It's all going to, and Jerusalem's going to be the epicenter and it looks like it's all over for God's people. And then they're going to cry out to the Messiah and I'm going to return leading an army from the host of heaven as king of kings and lord of lords and set foot again on the Mount of Olives and it's going to divide in half and I'm going to speak by the word of my mouth and destroy the enemy. Well, those are two very different appearances. And it was easy to conflate them. Now, we understand because we talk about this as we do our studies on Wednesday night. Bible prophecy is the period of time between Zechariah 9.9 his coming in humility, bringing salvation as the Lamb of God. And Zechariah fourteen one, Joel 3, Revelation 19, Isaiah, every other passage that talks about the kingdom... When he comes as king of kings and lord of lords. In between there, this parenthetical insert is largely not talked about in the Old Testament. So you can understand that these, what we call the apostles, were traveling with Jesus. And they're just assuming that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to destroy the Romans. He's going to establish his throne or his kingdom on the throne of David. And then they're saying, hey, we want to be most important. We want to be on the right hand and on the left hand. Well, obviously, the other ten disciples didn't think much of this. As it continues there in Mark chapter 10, it says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. So understand, these men that walked with Jesus literally for almost three years, yet here at the point, and Jesus is pouring out his heart for a number of reasons. One, to let them know that he had it all under control. This didn't take him by surprise. He knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew what his purpose was as the Lamb of God. His life wasn't taken from him. He gave it because of his love for us. So one thing we can take comfort as we see insanity going on in the world around us. We can be comforted because Jesus warned us that, hey, as it gets later in the day, times are become more and more perilous. So the things that are going on right now, even in this day with Klaus Schwab and the others, shouldn't catch us with great alarm. We never root for the Devils team. We always want to see victory in Jesus, quite frankly. You know, as a football player, the most important thing is that you had more points on the scoreboard at the end of the game. Nevertheless, you wanted to win every quarter. And nevertheless, beyond that, you wanted to win every play. So, yeah, we know what's going to happen, and we can take comfort in the fact that this isn't catching Jesus by surprise. Still, we fight for righteousness in everything. But these men, as Jesus poured out himself to them, saying, Hey, when we get to Jerusalem, I want you to understand what's going on. They're going to take me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit upon me. They're going to crucify me. But don't worry. After three days, I'm going to be risen from the dead. And they're sitting here going, "Uh uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Teacher, when we get to Jerusalem, can I sit on your right hand? You're talking about not hearing or having ears to hear but not listening. And then you go even a few days after this in the upper room, just hours before Jesus' arrest. He made the prophetical fulfillment that they said the shepherd will be taken and the sheep scattered. And notice... Peter's response, we're very familiar with it. Peter answered and said, though all these men may may run and hide, may they all turn their backs on you, but I will never turn my back on you. You know, at first thought, when you read this, you think that this was very noble of Peter. I don't think so. Think of the context of these other passages we've looked at. I think it was all about pride. I think Peter's saying, hey, Lord, these other men, these second-class disciples... Well, they may abandon you. They may deny you and run from you, but you can count on me, Lord. I'm Peter. They don't love you the way I love you. You can always count on me. And Jesus replied, Peter, before the sun rises tomorrow, you're going to wind up denying me three times. But think about their focus. The focus of the 12 was themselves. Who is most important? How will this affect me? What about me? What do I get out of this? When will I be recognized? My job's more important than yours. My calling's greater than yours. My ministry's bigger than yours. I want to receive proper credit for what I'm doing. And then when time came for Jesus to be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified, they were all too worried about themselves to take a stand for Jesus. Now, let me pause here and ask a question Were they all followers of Jesus? Well, other than uh, Judas, I'd say yes. They had been faithfully following Jesus for the better part of three years. In fact, that word disciple means a follower of. So they were, in fact, disciples of Jesus. Were they believers in Jesus? Once again, I would say yes. You heard Peter's testimony there at, uh, at Caesarea Philippi. He said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So they understood that part of it. But there was one component that was missing in their lives. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, in Hebrew, these are three words. Ruach, which means breath or spirit. Ha, which means of. And then Kodesh, which means sanctification or holiness. So literally, this means the spirit of sanctification or the spirit of holiness or how we use it in Christian terminology, the Holy Spirit. Now, in John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room with these 12 continuing this conversation that we referenced a moment ago. He first tells them that he's going to go away from them. He's going back to his father's house. But he tells them not to worry. He's going there to prepare a place for them. And if he goes and prepares a place for them, then he can rest assured that he's going to come back and get them. And then he assures them that he will not leave them in the meantime as orphans. In fact, he would ascend to heaven and be seated on the right hand of the Father, and he would send... Now, notice the terminology here in, the, in Scripture, another comforter. There are two Greek words that I want to reference briefly in passing here for some clarity and explanation. Just as you've heard me talk about, there are four different Greek words that, can, that are all translated as love in English... So, too, there are two different Greek words that are translated um, as another in English. One is alos, the other is heteros. And they have two completely different meanings. First is another of the same kind. The latter is another of a different kind. So Jesus says, I'm going to ascend to the Father's throne, but don't worry, I'm not going to leave you without leadership. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will send another of the same kind. I would argue uh, another demonstration of the triune Godhead as the Son, with permission of the Father, would send the Holy Spirit... And again, that next word, parakletos, aren't you glad we speak English and not Greek or some other language? But this literally means uh, para, means to, uh, to come alongside. Kaleo means to call. So basically it means to be called alongside to help. And then Jesus reveals something that's dynamic here that hasn't been talked about before. This help would not only be alongside with them, helping, but this help would be in them, the Holy Spirit within. So these 11 apostles, who we just saw earlier in the message, were all completely self-centered before the crucifixion. They were in hiding after the crucifixion. Yet history tells us that they all ultimately gave their lives heroically in sacrificial service and eventually in martyrdom. What was the change? I would argue that it was the indwelling Presence and the control of the spirit of holiness or the presence of God within them. Now, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul gives a comprehensive education on salvation. And he focuses on three parts of our salvation experience. You know, we always talk about your testimony. Hey, when did you get saved? Well, actually, you have been saved. You are being saved and you will be saved. Paul references that as justification sanctification and glorification. Now, justification is when you hit your knees just like doubting Thomas did and cried out to Jesus as my Lord and my God. Justification is when you you recognize that you're a sinner and doomed to hell and you recognize that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he shed his blood one time forever to pay the penalty of sins. And you fall on your knees and you cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, even save me. At that moment, the blood of Jesus atones for your sin and you you are justified just as if you'd never sinned. You are justified and freed from the penalty of sin. One of these days, we will actually be free from the very presence of sin. When God creates the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth, we'll be living there in glorified bodies. And the new bodies that we have will be just like the body Jesus had as he was resurrected from the the grave and, and, and not be prone or not have that Adamic sin nature within us. And what a time that will be. But in between there is where we find ourselves now. We are now in this period of sanctification... We are to be glorifying God in these bodies. By the way, I still have that Adamic nature. If you were here at the 10 o'clock class, Steve did a great job of dealing with this. I still am related to Adam. I still sin every day. In fact, John said in First John, if you claim that you stop sinning, then you lie and you know not the truth. Even though we don't like to sin, we still do. Why? Because it's in our nature. We still have these bodies, carnal bodies of flesh related to Adam, but we are to be being saved daily as we are desire to become more and more like Christ Jesus each and every day of our lives. That's what John was talking about. Every man that hath this hope of... me. let's just read this whole verse. This is so good. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Therefore, the world doesn't recognize us yet because it doesn't know Him. Beloved, we are now the sons of God. We're just as saved as we'll ever be right now. But it doesn't yet look like we are. You can't really tell the difference much of the time. As a matter of fact, a lot of We Christians act just as bad as non-Christians If not worse than non-Christians And it doth not yet appear what we shall be But we know that when he shall appear We shall be like him For we shall see him as he is Every man that hath this hope in him Purifieth himself even as he is pure. Peter said there, we are to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. So in this period of time, these lives that we have on earth, we are to be coming more and more like Christ each and every day. So in a nutshell, we are born as sons of Adam. We are born again as sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And at that point... When you say, Jesus, save me, according to the promises of Scripture, although we don't have the appearance of, of actually flames of fire above our heads anymore, but the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Holiness, takes up residence within us. Now, the Holy Spirit, we know, has many jobs. I'm not going to try to do a complete message on the Holy Spirit today. I don't even think I'm capable of doing that in a month of Sundays. But the Holy Spirit has many jobs. Number one, He convicts us of sin. Number two, He woos us and draws us towards the Savior. Number three, He teaches us and interprets the scripture. Number four we are placed into or baptized into, immersed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit and of course the Holy Spirit seals us, is our seal until the day of redemption. One of these days these these bodies of flesh will be transformed into glorified bodies. But even now as we are in these Adamic bodies of flesh we are sealed. What does a seal do? A seal demonstrates ownership a seal demonstrates authenticity we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and we are most certainly sons of God even now in these bodies and of course now the reason God leaves us on planet earth even after we get saved you may say well why doesn't God just take us to heaven once we've committed our hearts and lives to Christ well it's because God still has work for us to do and our primary purpose for being here is for the glory of God 1 Corinthians 10 31 whatsoever you do do it all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 6, 20, 20. Don't you know you've been bought with a price? The blood of the Lamb purchased our redemption. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us, guiding us and helping us, our helper, strengthening us, which helps us to live lives which glorify God. Now, in every one of these epistles, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, and we always go immediately to Galatians 5.22. Quite frankly, this same message is repeated in practically every epistle that Paul wrote. And sometimes the gifts are the same, sometimes they're not, because this is not an exhaustive list. But Jesus said, or through Paul in Philippians 2.13, It is God which worketh in you, both to have a desire to do things to glorify God, And to carry out and successfully do things which glorify God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So let's summarize what we've covered so far. We have this body of sinful flesh that has a desire to live for itself, that has a desire to serve itself, that wants to obey the desires of the flesh. But we also have the spirit of holiness living within us that has a desire to serve God, that has a desire to obey God, that has a desire to produce fruit naturally that only he can produce. And we currently have a struggle for control. It's what's called the strife of two nations, natures. So, who wins? It'll make three observations and we'll be done. Observation number one. First of all, we have internal control. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, filling of the Holy Spirit is different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every born-again believer is indwelt. By the Holy Spirit We're the temple of God The Holy Spirit resides within us In fact Paul said uh, To the church in Rome If you do not have the Holy Spirit within you Then you don't even belong to it." So every born again believer Has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Yet in all of these epistles Doesn't matter whether it's the church of Ephesus Or the church in Jerusalem Or the church in Corinth You name it We all have different types And degrees of sin Being carried out by people That are in fact indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Sins were different. Those in, in Jerusalem were, were, were tempted with pride. And of course I would say that that has to be their, their pharisaical roots being born out in them. You go to the church in Corinth and their whole problem was sexuality and sensuality. They wanted to be drawn back into that Greek worship of the body and the, and the temple worship of, of fornication down as they worship Dionysus and, other, and others like that. But we have the the spirit of holiness that tabernacles within us at conversion. But sanctification or victory over the controlling power of sin is a daily effort. And we have much control over the success or failure of the sanctification process. Read with me here in a famous passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. New Ephesians. Do not be drunk with wine where it is an excess, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourself one to another in the fear of God. Now, that word filled in the Greek language literally means to be crammed full. So let me give you an example. If you had a pothole out in front of your house and you were tired of hitting it with your car and and flattening your tires or or knocking your car out of alignment, you would take a, a wheelbarrow full of asphalt and you could go out with your shovel and you'd take a scoop of asphalt and put it, in that pothole and then you put another one in the pothole and another one in the pothole then you would smack it down with the shovel and try to make it solid in there maybe you'd stand on it walk on it try to pack it down in there then you would take another of asphalt and put it in there and another one put it in there and pat that down with the shovel and then stop on top of it and you would keep doing that process until you had filled the pothole to full and even to overflowing chances are you'd put a little rise on it so as you know it would get worn down as cars drove over the top of it. it. That is the definition of that word filled as is used here in Scripture. Now, the you is understood. You be filled. So this is a command. This is a direction that's given to us. You be filled. And this word, be filled, is a continual form of the verb. So this isn't a single occasion where you are indwelt at the moment of conversion by the Holy Spirit But this is a continuous commandment given to us to be being crammed full of the Holy Spirit. Now, by application in this verse, the expression filled literally means to be controlled by. In context and in contrast with the don't be filled with wine, whereas your body becomes inebriated and under control with this alcoholic beverage, I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hence, under the control of the Holy Spirit. You, Christians in Ephesus, you already have the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling. but I want you to be crammed full of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, we have a few things given in this list. One answer is with music and meditation that focuses on the Lord and draws our hearts toward God. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I must tell you, I have been overlooking this, and it was my great godly wife that brought this to my attention recently. She said, you need to start listening to you. I mean, do this. This will help you. Because i got to tell you, I've been going through some depression lately. You know, you just get physically worn out. You get emotionally beaten down. And after 25 years of faithful service here, I mean, I would think that I had garnered a little bit of trust. Uh, At this point in time, uh, nevertheless, that, that apparently is not true or obvious to all people. But godly music will help stir the spirit of the Lord within you. Let me give you an example. We know from Scripture that song has great power to do evil and also to do good. Think about when Saul, King Saul, who is called God's anointed, We know that King Saul would frequently have an evil spirit come over him. And what was the solution? Well, the associates would call for David, and David would come and bring his harp and sing psalms unto Saul and drive the evil spirit away. So let me give you an example of what I mean here. If you want to feed your anger, then play angry music. And you know what I'm talking about. Hey, I was a football player for many years. I promise you, we didn't get hyped up for pre-games by listening to The Sound of the Music by Julie Andrews. I mean, you, you were listening to some stuff that wanted to stir you into, into you know, fighting anger because that's what you're about to do. So if you want to be angry, then by all means, feed your spirit with angry music. If you want to stay depressed, then by all means, Continue to play the blues. But if you want to defeat the flesh, then make a melody in your heart with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in meditation. Another way that we can bring the Holy Spirit within us or be crammed full of the Holy Spirit is by the Word of God. John 6.63, Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. And they are truth. And then in Jesus, high priestly uh, intercessory prayer that's recorded in John chapter 17, as he was there in, 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 in Gethsemane, he said, Father, uh, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we can be filled With the Holy Spirit, give more and more power to the Holy Spirit by, one, being crammed full of the Word of God. Number two, by being crammed full of meditations and songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And then number three that's listed here is thankfulness. You know what, folks? That is so key. Think, think Think of how we are as people. We take every gift that we have for granted and quickly forget about it. And immediately start focusing on some other want. For example, look at the Israelites. 400 years in Egypt as slaves, God miraculously delivered them through the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptian army in their wake, and three days outside of Egypt, they were saying, remember the good old days back in Egypt? Boy, God's not doing a good job of providing us food and providing us water. Here, for the first time in 400 years, they'd had a Sabbath day. They had had time off rather than under the the brunt of, of hard labor. And immediately, they took that for granted and started complaining. So the point is, it's hard to complain when you're busy counting your blessings. It's hard to complain When you're busy counting your blessings. Let me tell you what. I can't tell you how many times that I have been out on the golf course complaining about how bad life is. And let me tell you, it doesn't get very far. Because I'm saying, Lord, this is just not fair. It's got to be better than this. But then I go, here you are living in the United States of America. You uh, woke up in an air-conditioned house. You woke up to a refrigerator full of food. You drove your car that you own to the golf course, and now you're playing golf, and you're complaining about how bad you have it. Folks, you're not getting very far in your complaints before God when you first stop to count your blessings. So you're going to be filled full of the Holy Spirit. And recognize that you're going to be controlled by whatever you're filled with. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit by filling yourself with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, meditations, the Word of God... ...and having an attitude of gratitude, thanking God for His continued and many blessings. The Bible tells us, Matthew 12, verse 35, Jesus says, "...a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things." In other words, you're going to take out whatever you put in. If you put in things that feed the spirit, you're going to withdraw spiritual things. If you put in things that feed the flesh, you're going to withdraw fleshly things. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Actions begin here within the command center of the human body. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the apostle Paul said this, I beg you, brethren. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, Kadesh, holy and and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we transformed, Lord? By the renewing of your mind that we may prove or discern or know what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a simple fact. You can't take a burlap sack, fill it full of rattlesnakes, and then be surprised when you reach in and don't pull out a rattlesnake. You can't say, oh, I think I'm going to pull out a bunny, and all you put in there is rattlesnakes. You're going to pull out a rattlesnake. You're going to draw whatever it is that you've put in it. So if you feed the flesh, then expect fleshly results. If you feed the spirit... Uh, expect sinful or, or, or spiritual result. You fill your mind with sinful thoughts and meditations, you're going to get sinful actions. You fill your mind with spiritual thoughts and meditations, then you get get spiritual actions, godly actions. So, in a summary, if your desire is to live for the flesh, then be filled with things of the flesh. If your desire is to live for for God, then you need to be filled with the things of holiness. And your desire is holiness. You, you'll be filled with the Spirit of holiness. But you can't expect your mind with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life to naturally bear spiritual fruit. In fact, as I said, this same subject is literally brought up to every church that Paul addresses. Here's an example in Philippians. Finally, brethren, as I'm wrapping things up in this letter, remember whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, then make sure you think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. So observation number one is that we have this uh, internal, um, uh, we have this internal uh, control. Observation number two is that we must have instinctive resolve. One passage of Scripture, Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, halak, we live in this body of flesh still related to Adam. The war is really not first with something that's Material. The world the world the, the real war is in the thoughts and imaginations a biblical worldview versus a satanic or atheistic worldview for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Paul goes on, but mighty through God. To the pulling down of strongholds. So, we're not attacking a fort on a city with walls around the perimeter. We're attacking these lies and deceptions of the devil that wants to, to kill and destroy every human and every soul, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into obedience every thought, every, and into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, take Every thought captive, bring it unto obedience of Christ. Folks, there are so many vain philosophies and satanic ideas out there. You can't master them all, but you don't need to. What you need to know comprehensively and what you need to know explicitly well are what the truth is. If you know what God's truth is, then anytime anything that is not true is introduced to you, you will recognize it and you will defeat it at the walls of the gates of your mind and your inner being. Hey, a city had walls around it. The strongest point was at the wall. If, a person climbed, if an army climbed the hill and got over the wall and inside the walls of the city, then you were in a fight for your life. It was house to house and, and hand to hand combat. The best place to win is right there at the walls of the city. So what we're being told here with Paul in this letter to the church of Corinth is make sure that you take every thought captive and bring it under obedience to the word of God. So, here's what I would suggest. Don't wait until the pressure is on and in the heat of the moment, try to decide to do the right thing. You must be in the Word of God so much that you know the right thing ahead of time. And then, instinctively, at the moment of conflict, you will know and choose to do the right thing. An example is uh, soldiering. You know, you take a young man, put him through all those weeks of basic training... What are you training him to do? You're training him to respond instinctively. So the first time he he has boots on the ground out of a helicopter and there's actually guns and bullets flying around him, he doesn't lock up. It's instinct that takes over. As an offensive lineman, there was all sorts of activity with the defensive front. And our blocking assignments changed based upon the alignment of the defense. And we could, our quarterback could be barking the snap count. We could be moments away from from coming off the line of scrimmage. And all of a sudden, this this down lineman that's over my outside eye shifts down over the guard. And the linebacker shifts over here. Well, you know what? That just totally changed our entire strategy. I've got to know that instinctively. The guard's got to know it instinctively because we don't have time to talk. The quarterback's about to say, "hut." we have to instinctively know how to respond. And we, too, in our Christian walks, we need to know instinctively what right and wrong is. And at the moment the, the, the deceiver, Satan, tries to tempt us to do wrong, we shut it off at the gates of the city. For example, young ladies, before you start going out with a boy on dates, you know that when he puts his hand on your leg, you know ahead of time, that's a no-go zone. You already think through ahead of time. When that happens, how am I going to respond? You working at a major corporation and it's getting crazier by the day. You've got to know ahead of time. When your office manager sends you an email with his or her pronouns, preferred pronouns. Folks, I'm not going to feed someone's delusion. That's not loving your neighbor. I'm going to love my neighbor by being true to them. And if you are born a male, then your pronouns are he and him. If you're born a female, then your pronouns are she and her. And if you're not Sure, what you are, you've got more problems than you know right now. But you all need to know ahead of time how you're going to respond to this. And just as we saw with COVID, it could put you in a position where you run the risk of losing your job. So you need to count the cost now before the pressure's on and know what the right thing to do is and determine in your mind that God will see you through whatever it is you go through and you better make that decision now. So that's that instinctive resolve. Number three, and we're coming in for a landing. External support. External support. Internal control, instinctive resolve, and external support. Paul tells us in his letter to the Hebrews, let us... Consider one another. That means to observe one another. And I think for two primary reasons, we're going to see one of them explicitly here for accountability and also for encouragement. Let us consider one another to provoke one another unto love and to good works. So don't forsake the synagoguing or the assembling of yourselves together as some choose to do. But instead, exhort one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching, inferring that things are going to continue to get tougher and tougher. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you can get some great preaching uh, by turning on bot radio. Especially at what time are we on, Dan? Three o'clock? Especially at three o'clock. You'll get that later when you drive home. You can get good preaching by turning on uh, the television and watching Jack Hibbs or something like that. But that's not just the only reason we come together, although we do come together to study Scripture. But one of the things that you can't get unless you gather together is the accountability from a brother that loves you in the Lord and wants to see you succeed in the Lord. And the encouragement that we get from being able to hug each other. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me today and hugged me and just thanked me for doing what God's called me to do. You know what? God's called me to do it. My my job is to be obedient and just do it. No questions asked. However, it sure helps a lot, Carrie Beth, when you get a thank you and a pat on the back, doesn't it? Sure helps a lot, Joe, when you get a thank you and a pat on the back. That little bit of encouragement is what it's talking about to provoke one another unto love and to good works. So uh, let me give you this uh, as we we are, are coming to a close. One of the other reasons we come together in this assembly is for mentoring. And it's very important that we be sensitive to who we're affecting with our lives and take note of people that have a need that are around you, that you can befriend. And mentoring, quite frankly, it continues to change. I think a 15-year-old is going to have a hard time being mentored by a 60-year-old. Because a 15-year-old can't even relate to being 60. It's like, my goodness, what is that, death times two? (laughs) But a 15-year-old can look up to a college kid that's 21 that's living for Jesus and and honoring Jesus and say, hey, I I, I admire him. I want to be like him. Therefore, that 21-year-old that's living for Jesus has the ability to mentor that 15 and 16-year-old that's looking up to him. And that 21-year-old can look at a 30-year-old married couple with a couple of young runts running around the house. And they can identify and say, you know what? I can't imagine myself being as old as Blair or Kern. I mean, that's like the Crypt Keepers. However, I can see myself at 30 being like Damon White or, or like this, living for God, honoring God in my life. So mentoring is important. Quite frankly, we all need it. You know, there's. A, I told Cindy, you know, uh, sometimes things are tough. My, my kids are moved out, so mom, mom is no longer on the job as mom every day in our household because both of our sons have gotten married, moved out, and had their own homes. So what's our reason for being here? Well, right now, I, I, we've, we've talked about it. I've told her right now we're here to be a, a support and a help and a model for them to show them how a Christian ages gracefully and according to God's word and glorifying God as we are past that intense child-raising years. So you're always mentoring. And here's solid recommendation. Surround yourself with the type of people that you want to think like and be like. Hey, you may be in church, and quite frankly, we'll talk about this. We're going to talk about love, I think, next week. We're going to go through the fruit of the Spirit. But we love each other, agape. We're commanded to do that. But you know what? We're not all everybody's cup of tea. We got some people out here that are very much wilderness lovers and getting out and building a campfire and nothing, and you know love a camper and all that kind of stuff. Not me. To me, roughing it is having to stay in a Hampton Inn. You're going to find people that you identify with that you are friends with, on top of just me the, being the agape with, and that's normal and natural. But you want to love everyone in the church agape but you might not go to lunch with everybody on church on a routine basis. For example, during football season, I will not go out to lunch with anybody that supports Green Bay. I have my limits. Bears are spiritual holiness. Green Bay is the devil. So, I mean, you have to take strong stands like that. But anyway, surround yourself by the type of people that you want to be like and you want to think like. And here is the, the final part of this message, Romans eight eleven. And this is what's really neat if you think about it. Of course, Paul goes into detail and talks about this strife of, of natures. But in, in chapter 8, verse 11 of the book of Romans, he said this, If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also bring to life your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So get this. Jesus' body was absolutely physically dead. He had been beaten with a cat of nine tails. He had been beaten with fists. He had a crown of thorns shoved down on His head. He had been nailed to a cross. He had a spear shoved up under his spear, up, to, up under His ribs, piercing His heart. He was dead. And He was dead for three days laying there in a cold garden tomb. And after those three days, the spirit of holiness, the Ruach Hakodesh, brought his dead body back to life, even beyond what it was, brought it back to the glorified body that he has at this moment right now. Now, that same Holy Spirit that brought that dead body to a glorified life is also available to us and in us. And if we will be filled with the Holy Spirit and surrender control to the Spirit of holiness, then that same Holy Spirit that brought Jesus' dead body back to life can bring our living, but spiritually dead bodies, before we were saved, these carnal bodies, to life in a way that it will glorify God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, one of these days, we're going to have spiritual bodies like Jesus. There's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. We will be in glorified bodies. And the Bible says there will be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. What a day that will be. I cannot imagine where we have an existence outside the very presence of sin. And we no longer have sin in our nature. Can you imagine being able to fellowship together and worship together as we're doing whatever we're doing across the universe without any hint of lust or jealousy or pride affecting any part of our existence? Well, I can't even imagine that. I'm bound by this Adamic nature and, and, and body of flesh. But one of these days, we will experience and enjoy that glory. But until then, the Bible says that we can have a little taste of it by surrendering control of ourselves to the Lord within us. And this earthly body, although still suffering from the affliction of sin, but supernaturally, we can bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long suffering, meekness, gentleness, temperance, faith, and on and on and on.